You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD+, even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Today's cool fact of the day is that scientists didn't discover the presence of blood sugar was a normal physiological phenomenon until 1848. Before that, they thought that any blood sugar was a sign you were sick and that diabetes was a nervous affliction of the lungs. You look at how far medicine has come ever since then. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio, and today's guest is none other than Mark Hyman. Mark is a very well-known guy who's become a friend of mine. I've had several opportunities to spend some time with him, just an amazing gem of a human being as well as a physician who really looks at chronic illness and root causes and is one of the leaders in the field of functional medicine. He's also a family physician and he's only written eight New York Times best-selling books about health and wellness. He runs the Ultra Wellness Center. He's a columnist for Huffington Post. He's regularly on the Katie Couric Show. He's on the Medical Advisory Board for Dr. Oz and about 50 other things that are just incredibly, incredibly impressive. So if you wanted to 
to just have an example of someone who's carrying the flag for modern functional medicine, Mark is the guy. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Dave. Let's talk about functional medicine and why people who maybe aren't even sick might care about functional medicine. What is it and what does it mean to you? Well, functional medicine is something that most people probably have never heard of, but is something that everybody will get eventually. You know, in, <laughs> in, in the past, we used to call cars horseless carriages. Today, we call medicine, functional medicine is the right medicine. It will be called just medicine because it's really understanding the root causes of disease. Right now, we practice medicine by symptom. If you have a symptom, then we make a diagnosis. What functional medicine does is says, wait a minute, we're not a bunch of collection of different organs. We're an organism. We're a system. We're an integrated system. And we have to understand what the roots of disease are, not just the branches and the leaves. We want to get to the roots. And so functional medicine is a methodology of thinking about how to get to the root cause of illness. So I always say, for example, if you have uh, hopelessness and sadness and you don't have much interest in food and you're not interested in sex, you know, the doctor would say, oh, I know what's wrong with you. You have depression, right? But that's just the name of your disease. It's not the cause of the disease. So functional medicine teaches about the cause. And when we get to the cause, we can say, well, maybe it's because you're eating gluten and that's causing an autoimmune thyroid problem. Or maybe because you've been taking an acid blocking drug for reflux, it's causing B12 deficiency. Or maybe you live in Northern British Columbia and have vitamin D deficiency. <laughs> maybe it's because you, uh, have taken antibiotics that altered your gut flora that changed your brain chemistry, or maybe it's because you eat sushi all the time and, and tuna and have mercury poisoning, or maybe it's because you hate fish and have mercury and have omega-3 deficiency, or you eat too much sugar and have prediabetes. All of those will cause the same symptoms. But with functional medicine, we can actually figure out which of those problems are causing your particular set of, of symptoms that are called depression, but it's really a different framework for disease. That was the coolest run-on sentence I've ever heard. And, and it's so accurate because every so, one of those really can be, uh, really can cause this problem. And when, when we look at biohacking, this art of changing the environment around you, you're one of the physicians who's really looking at, okay, what are the environmental inputs rather than looking at it as, as just one part of the body or even just the body? Because right. most of what you described wasn't even in the person. Right, right. right? So how's the environment and your lifestyle affect your genes and your biology to create the you who you are in this moment. That's what functional medicine is. And so it's understanding the dynamic of all those factors that are lifestyle and environmental that are driving. We were talking about mold before, heavy metals or environmental toxins. All those things influence our health and also our constitution, our resilience, our biological resilience affects our health. So functional medicine is the science of creating health and of creating more biological resilience so you actually can be more able to tolerate a wide range of different stresses. That's what resilience is. It's amazing that you mentioned resilience. The last few podcasts I've recorded, it's just come up naturally because the end result is not that everyone necessarily wants more energy, but they want more resilience because resilience is more important than just having more energy. If you're a little tired, but you can take what's coming to you, it automatically means you have the energy. But when a little thing just knocks you over and you don't recover well, that's when you know that Maybe you're not sick, but you're not well either. And it, my experience is that most people spend most of their lives not being well because they've never felt what it's like to be well. That's right. So, you know, if, if your bar is here, like, okay, this is, I'm feeling good. They don't know they could be all the way up here. That's, that's right. I always, most, most of my patients say, Dr. Hyman, I didn't know I was feeling so bad until I started feeling so good. 
I thought this is what I was supposed to feel like, right? A little achy, a little tired, a little runny nose, a little congestion, a little digestive issues, a little muscle pain, a little headache. I mean, people just tolerate so much that they don't have to and that they're really only a few days away from health and happiness. It's amazing how quickly people can shift. People can shift so quickly and they become aware or they, they become unaware of these things because they sneak up. So you get these little yeah. tiny drips and all of a sudden you've been eroded. And then uh, because I run an anti-aging education group that's been around for 20 years, it's so much work to take someone who's broken and fix them compared to just doing the basic things that stop erosion in the first place, preventive maintenance. Right. And not many doctors talk preventive maintenance, but I know you focus a lot on that. What are some examples of the types of preventive maintenance that you'd recommend for someone, say someone who is under 30 and in reasonably good but not tip-top condition who would come in? Well, you know, Dave, it's amazing you you talk about this because the the thing that causes you to prevent disease are the same things we use to treat disease. (laughs) So it's actually the same stuff. So I can take someone who's very, very sick and use intensive lifestyle therapy to fix them, let's say a diabetic, or I can take someone who's well and keep them well using the same strategy. So the things that I do for myself to keep myself healthy are the same things I use to treat my chronically ill patients. They just never have done them before. When you actually put in the right things and you take out the bad things, your body works. So so for a base, it's, it's not, obviously not rocket science. So it's, I, I sort of embarrassed that I get paid for telling people to eat real food, to move their bodies, to learn how to reset and, and restore and relax, and, and how to connect and love other people. I mean, it's sort of silly, right? But most people don't have the simple tools of how to care and feed for their human body. We don't learn that in school. We don't know how to do it. We don't have the right information. And so we don't do it. And so our bodies break down and we get sick. And that's really why I love functional medicine, because it's really the science of creating health. So what do we do? We take out the bad stuff and we put in the good stuff. So what do we take out? Well, it depends on the person, right? So it's, we take out a crappy diet. We call that the sad diet, the standard American diet. So you want to eat real food, but get rid of all the processed foods and junk. And those things erode your health over time. The second is you know, chronic stresses of any kind. So any unremitting stress, physical or psychological, will break down your body. So you have to learn how to manage your response to life. Because stress is not necessarily an external thing. It's your response to that thing. Right. So, you know, Woody Allen has a gun to his head. He freaks out. James Bond, he has a gun to his head. It doesn't bother him, right? Same external event, different response. Uh, and, then, and then there's other factors that some people have to get rid of, like allergens or toxins or, or microbes. And the way that we do that is you know, allergens, you know, if you have any kind of health issue, doing an elimination diet or a detox, works really well. And I, I just wrote a book called The 10-Day Detox Diet, which is really a reset. And, and sometimes you don't know if you're reacting to something until you get rid of it, like dairy. Or- the second is um, is microbes. And you know, keeping your gut flora healthy is really, really critical. And those are the most important microbes you're dealing with. And so doing things like eating fermented foods, taking probiotics, eating lots of plant foods, keeping your gut flora healthy is really important. And the third thing is reduce your toxic load. So you shouldn't be eating high mercury fish like tuna and swordfish. You should be avoiding toxins in your environment if you can. And there, I'm uh, on the board of the Environmental Working Group. And at EWG.org, they have all sorts of wonderful guides like how to, how to have um, safe things that you put on your skin called skin deep. So whether your cosmetics have toxins in them or your household cleaners or your food, how to eat food that has less pesticides. So there are some strategies to doing that that are, that are easily available at EWG.org. 
Um, so most, by the way, just a quick shout out for EWG. This is one of those websites. If you haven't come across this before, I, I'm a giant supporter. I, I made a donation, maybe not that giant, but giant by my standards anyway, um, this year, because it, it's one of those organizations that has just beautiful information that's accessible about the stuff that's making you weak that you don't even know about. Yeah, and it's personal, right? So, you know, like most of us think environmental toxins, it's vague, it's abstract. They make it personal, they make it accessible, they make you able to be, do something about it. And that's, that's why I joined the board, because I believe in what they're, what they're doing. And so then, the, so you get rid of the bad stuff. So toxins, allergens, microbes, stress, poor diet, and then you put in the good stuff. And this is true for any condition or any disease or any prevention strategy. And the good stuff is obvious. It's real food. Now, there's debates whether you should be paleo or vegan. I call myself a pegan, a paleo vegan. You know, <laughs> I think you know meat should be a condiment, and we should be eating mostly vegetables. So, and so the, that's the, uh, sorry to interrupt. Um, the, the other equivalent of, of pegan is lacto ovo beefo porco vegetarian. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That's good. That's a very good. One. Yeah. So I, I'm going to call myself a pegan. So I think I, I like think it. we have to move towards eating you know less animal products, but but they can be part of a healthy diet. It's very low glycemic, which means it shouldn't raise your blood sugar, and I've written a lot about that. And that's probably the most important quality of the diet, whether it's, whether it's vegetarian or whether it's, or it's not. It should be a very low glycemic diet. If you're, if you're eating chips and soda, that's a vegetarian diet. You know, that's not what you want to be eating. Or if you're eating a ton of rice, that's a vegetarian diet, but it may not be healthy. Let's so, talk about fructose, because fructose is low on the glycemic index. Fructose is what you find in fruit or in high fructose corn syrup. So given what fructose does to diabetes and all, yeah. how does that fit into your perspective on sugars and glycemic index? A great, great question. So, so people just need a little bit of a lesson on sugar. I, I've written a lot about sugar, the blood sugar solution, the 10-day detox diet, and you can learn more about the science of it in, in those books. But the, the idea here is that Sugar is comprised of two molecules, glucose and fructose. So table sugar is glucose and fructose. Now, when you have fruit, you're getting a little bit of both, and, and there's more fructose in it, but it's combined with lots of fiber, and it's more slowly absorbed, and it has also lots of vitamins and minerals along with it and phytonutrients. So it's different than, for example, having a high-fructose corn syrup. Now, when you have glucose, your blood glucose will go up. When you have fructose, your blood glucose won't go up. So it says it has a low glycemic index. So you, may, you think that's okay, but actually here's what really happens. Fructose goes right to your liver, like mainlines to your liver, and it turns on a switch in your liver called lipogenesis, which means it actually turns on a fat production factory. So you make triglycerides, you become insulin resistant or pre-diabetic, you become inflamed, it turns on fat storage in the belly, and when that happens, you, you increase insulin, it sucks the available fuels out of your blood, so ketones, glucose, and, uh, and free fatty acids, and they go into your cells, in the fat cells around your belly fat, and your body thinks, wait a minute, there's, there's, there's nothing here, so I better slow my metabolism, I better eat more, and I better store fat, which is the opposite of what you want to do. And then it causes fatty liver, now we've seen, we see five-year-olds with fatty liver, we see wow. not called non-alcoholic fatty livers, like fatty liver used to be only in alcoholics. Now we see it in little kids because they're drinking soda because the high fructose in the sodas, and sometimes it's up to 75% fructose, and free fructose causes this huge reaction and causes fat production in the liver, and, and it's like foie gras, and it's, 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 these kids are now 12 years old needing liver transplants. Wow. So fructose is not bad in of itself if you're eating it in fruit, but if you're having high fructose corn syrup, 
it's a bad news game because when you see anything with high fructose corn syrup, it's not really that much worse for you than regular sugar, but it's a sign that it's a poor quality food, that it's a hyper processed food, that it's probably got tons of other bad ingredients in it, and you should stay away. And, and also in the manufacturing process, they use chloralkali, which puts mercury in the high fructose corn syrup. So you're getting a little mercury sometimes with your high fructose corn syrup. There's no so, extra charge, so it's okay. No extra charge. And there's <laughs> another thing that happens, and this is from Dr. Bruce Ames at, at, um, at, in Oakland. He's one of the most uh, revered and, and uh, respected scientists, Bruce Ames. He, he actually is studying the effect of high fructose corn syrup on the gut. And what he found is that when there's a lot of fructose in the diet, in the form of high fructose corn syrup, it requires a lot of energy to be absorbed. So in order to absorb fructose across the intestinal lining, it uses two molecules of ATP. That's oh. the energy. Yeah. So it actually, it actually sucks the energy out of the gut. What, what happens is the gut has these little cells that are stuck together like Legos, like this, like tight junctions, and it requires energy. But when you eat too much fructose, these, these uh, Legos come apart and you get leaky gut. And that means food particles and bacteria and other toxins leak in to your bloodstream. And by the way, 60% of your immune system is right below your intestinal lining. So you're essentially one cell away from a sewer and you eat fructose, high fructose corn syrup containing foods, you're getting a leaky gut that's leading to more inflammation and more disease. So it's not a good idea. Is there a maximum amount of fructose that you think is safe per day for the average person to have? I think if fructose is contained in natural foods, I wouldn't even worry about it. You know? Wow. So, so 100 grams from bananas or peaches, no problem? I mean, but no, who's going to eat like you know, 20 bananas? Like it's just self-regulate, right? How many bananas can you eat? You know, how many peaches can you eat? I, when I was a raw vegan, I was pretty, pretty heavy duty on the fruit, partly because I was starving all the time. So I was right. just right. eating everything like that. But uh, I, I, be careful with fruit. I mean, you can yeah. overdo it on the fruit. I gain weight from fruit, so I, I tend to yeah. eat one or two pieces in the evening only if I'm going to do it. I agree. I think if you if you are pre-diabetic or insulin resistant or okay. have any genetic predispositions, you're going to respond much differently than the same amount of sugar. So, for example, if I eat something with sugar or fructose, my insulin might go up like this. Yours might go up like this. And over time, even though it's the same exact food, my body responds differently than yours you will then start putting on belly fat and store fat. So I think, yes, you have to worry about the, the, the glycemic load. And if you just, all you're eating is fruit, that's a bad idea. Uh, absolutely. And what about the connection between fructose and gout? People always think of eating meat yeah. causing gout. Yeah, well, it's actually not, it's not <laughs> meat that causes gout. It's actually insulin resistance or prediabetes, which causes increases in uric acid. So we see this all the time. And, and in fact, it's the sugar that causes gout, not the meat. Uh, well said. Thank you. If, if you're listening to this and you haven't heard that and someone's telling you, oh, eat less meat, which means eat more sugar usually because you have yeah. gout. And, and I say this because a lot of my friends in the you know, 30 to 40 age range in Silicon Valley, you know, entrepreneur types, they're getting gout. They call me up. I'm like, number one, drop the beer. Number two, eat less sugar and maybe less grain, heaven forbid. The alcohol is sugar, so the people get it from alcohol too. Yeah, and you get the extra little toxins from beer, which is you know worse than vodka because of the, the grains that are in it. So what about food addiction? Is food addiction just because we have all these cravings because we ate fructose or we ate toxins and then we, we got cravings as a result? Or how does that work? Well, that's a great question. You know, Dave, what we're learning, and since I wrote The Blood Sugar Solution, I learned that uh, there's a whole bunch more research done on the biology of food addiction. So then I wrote the 10-day detox diet, 
which gave people a roadmap to actually unravel why they're really so hungry yeah. and they're fat. Like, how do we answer the question, why are we so fat, right? Think about it. I mean, there's 70% of Americans are overweight. And it's not that everybody wakes up in the morning and goes, hey, I want to be fat. I'm going to overeat today and I'm just going to, you know, I want to be fat. Nobody says that. So why is it that despite our best efforts, we keep gaining weight? It's because the food that we're eating is biologically addictive from, from not just a metaphorical point of view, but a literal point of view. And then it, then it turns on centers in the brain that stimulate dopamine. And dopamine is the pleasure molecule. And it's the same area that gets stimulated with uh, nicotine or heroin or cocaine. And, and when you see that light up on a brain scan with someone eating sugar, it's very convincing. You know, Dr. David Ludwig did a study where he took two groups of, uh, he took two, one group of guys who were overweight and he gave them different milkshakes. One day he gave them a milkshake that was a low glycemic milkshake, meaning it didn't raise the blood sugar quickly. And another day he gave them a high glycemic milkshake that raised the blood sugar quickly. And the milkshakes were identical, same calories, same amount of protein, same amount of fat, same amount of carbs, same amount of fiber, everything held exactly the same, except they used a different kind of starch, a slowly digested starch in one of them for the sugar. And so they didn't know which one they were eating. When the ones that had the high glycemic milkshake, they were hungrier, their insulin went higher, their blood sugar went higher, and four hours later, their brain scans looked like they'd just been taking a load of heroin. And so that's what happens when you, when you actually eat foods that are high in sugar. Now, it's not that sugar is bad. I love sugar. Everybody loves sugar. Nobody listening to this podcast thinks that, that, that they don't like sugar. Everybody loves sugar because we're programmed to love sugar. The problem is we're eating it in pharmacologic doses, right? We're eating 152 pounds of sugar and 146 pounds of flour per person per year. That's almost a pound of sugar and flour combined for every man, woman, and child. Like that's a drug dose, right? So if we think of sugar as a recreational drug, fine. You know, I like tequila, but I'm not going to walk around all day with a glass of tequila drinking it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, right? But we eat sugar for breakfast, lunch, and dinner in America. That's the problem. So it's okay to do just a couple lines of sugar. Yeah, just a couple lines. Throw <laughs> up a $100 bill. That probably would be the best way, you know. It, it's kind of funny because when you're trying to be in ketosis, you know, the fat burning mode where you've, you've really cut this out, you have to be religious about even, you know, a few a tablespoon of sugar, but if you're reasonably metabolically healthy and you have very small amounts that naturally occur or might even be in that, you know, barbecue sauce or something, you're probably not going to die from that, right? No, no. Yeah. I mean, no, I, I think, you know, it's about resilience, like I said. So I know, for example, I'm very fit and I just rode my bike 25 miles and I, I have very low body fat and I, I have very high VO2 max. I know I burn my calories very well. I, I fixed my metabolism, so it works really well. So if I want to have you know, something sweet, like a bunch of chocolate, I'll, I'll eat it. I'm not going to think, I'll worry about it. Like the other night I had like a bowl full of uh, chocolate and berries. It was really great. You know, I don't, I don't, you know, hit, hit it myself. I don't, I don't, I'll, like, I'll never want a piece of cake. I'll never want a muffin. I'll never want, my body just doesn't even think about it anymore. In fact, like somebody served a giant piece of cake the other night at some event and I was like, no, thank you. Like I just, it wasn't like I was depriving myself. I was like, why would I want to eat that? That doesn't even look good to me. You must see this with your, your patients all the time. For me, it was always, oh, a bagel, a cookie, a piece of cake. Like, I want that. And, and yes. when I first went on this, this you know, 15 years ago, it was an act of willpower. And at some point, when you get your nutrition and your micronutrients and your macronutrients right, you're getting enough healthy fat that your biology is, is satisfied. 
I look at those things and it's like not food. Like they, they don't register in my body. It, it's like it could be a rock or it could be a bagel, but neither one has any attraction unless I want to throw it at someone. It's very true. You rewire, you know, and that's what I, that, you know, I, I realized we needed a, a radical approach, which is um, a medical sugar detox, essentially. And, and I learned how to do this in my practice over many decades and looking at the science. And I basically designed a medical sugar detox, which is a 10-day detox diet, which is a book, and it, it's available at 10daydetox.com. And essentially, it's, it's looking at how do we, using science, reprogram our hormones and our insulin and our brain chemistry very quickly, because you don't want to have this be a long, painful process. All it takes is 10 days, and within the first three days, most of all the cravings are gone, and people start to feel better. And by the end of the 10 days, you've literally rebooted your whole system. It's like all your computer programs are all not working and just kind of spinning. And you, what you have to do is just a reboot. You have to restart the whole thing. So when you do that, you get a fresh start. And then you get to see actually how good you can feel. Because when we did this, not only did we had 600 people do it, not only did they lose like uh, 4,000 pounds and they dropped, you know, a lot of weight, their blood sugar dropped 20 points on average, 10 points of blood pressure dropped. But we did a medical symptoms questionnaire where they tracked how they felt, you know, whether it's headaches or joint pain or depression or insomnia or irritable bowel, whatever it was. There was a 62% reduction in all symptoms from all diseases in 10 days. Some guy came up to me the other day and says, I did this for 10 days. I have rheumatoid arthritis. So all my pain went away. Is that possible? I'm like, yeah, it's possible because the body wants to be healthy. You know, illness is just a body's best response to a bad set of circumstances. You change the circumstances, the body wants to get back to health. That's a powerful statement that the natural state is health uh, because I, no one ever taught me that. And, and I, I don't know that I ever knew what it even felt like because you just assume that whatever you have is that state. And you're probably wrong unless you're doing some very specific practices like the ones in your book. You know, the 10 yeah. day detox or 10 day sugar detox is a, is a really good idea. And it's worth doing if, you know, as you're driving, listening to this, you're drinking a big gulp. Like it's time to get that book <laughs> because yeah. uh, you can feel uh, very, very different. Well, we we have all this obesity going on, and it's very easy to spot when you know you get people with massive rolls of fat coming down over their waistband. But there's also this concept of, of skinny fat when you've got yeah. like all of the fat packed around your organs, but you still you know look good. Yeah, is skinny fat real? Like, what's oh, yeah. what's your medical perspective on that? And how do people know if they think they're thin but they're actually skinny fat? It's actually also called tofi, not to be mistaken for tofu. Tofi means thin on the outside, fat on the inside. Oh, right? I love it. T-O-F-I. Okay. Thin on the outside, fat on the inside. And it's very real. In fact, many um, ethnicities have prediabetes or type 2 diabetes at much lower weights. For example, Asians, uh, Chinese, Japanese, Indians, and um very, very low body weight, but they still will get it with, because the fat deposits around their organs. So even though they might not be actually overweight, they're over fat. They have lost muscle and replaced it with fat. And that happens particularly as you age. A lot of people might be the same weight they were when they were 25 and 65, but they might be twice as fat. And metabolically, when you check their blood work, they actually look like they have diabetes. They have prediabetes, they have insulin resistance, they have abnormal cholesterol, high triglycerides, high blood sugar, and they look thin. And so it basically it affects about 25% of the thin people. Now, there's only 30% of the populations that's thin, and 25% of them have skinny fat syndrome. So 25% of thin people have skinny fat. 
Yes. Unbelievable. I didn't realize the incidence was anywhere near that. And as someone who used to weigh 300 pounds with, you know, size, I would say 46 was the largest pants I, I ever had to buy. I, uh, I, I never had to deal with skinny fat myself. No, you, you <laughs> No, that's true. So actually, we can do DEXA scans, and you can see okay. where the fat is. We used to do those scans when I worked at Canyon Ranch. We can see actually where the fat is distributed. So you might have you know, skinny arms and legs, but you have all this fat around your organs, and that's the dangerous fat. We call that VAT or VAT, visceral adipose tissue. It's funny you mentioned DEXA. That was my next question was, what's the best way of determining body fat in your clinical experience? Yeah, it's, it's a DEXA scan. It it's is like DEXA. It's for low densities, okay. and it's for low-density X-ray it's you have to get like 50 scans to equal one flight across the country, uh, you know, or one chest X-ray, and and it's it's it looks at the distribution of fat and also the composition of your body, and you can see things you'd really be surprised about. So someone who's thin has tremendous amounts of of, of body fat, and and you cannot actually tell by a body mass index because you know Shaquille O'Neal has a body mass index of 35. Doesn't mean he's morbidly obese. It just means he's got tons of muscle. So you, you kind of the, the body composition is really the key. I have a Nintendo Wii, which I, I like it because it, it's a biofeedback machine. So if you want to train your balance, you can stand and watch how you wobble. And anything that gives me real-time uh, biofeedback about how I move or how I think is fair game for biohacking. But my little icon there, when I type in my proper height and weight, draws this round, fat little man. And, and I'm like, screw you guys, man. <laughs> like I happen to be a little bit muscular. So I, exactly, the, those tables are, are totally wrong. That's funny. Now, when you talk about detox, there's two different meanings of that word. One is Betty Ford, which is the drug yes. side. The other one is like drinking a bunch of like lemon juice and right. and stuff yeah, like and enemas and clonics and right. Yeah, 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 exactly. So what's all these different nuances of detox? What what is your detox? Well, what I'm actually talking about is the Betty Ford of sugar. <laughs> I love it. It's, a, <laughs> it's actually not a juice cleanse. It's actually not about restricting what you're doing. Those have their place, and they can be used for some people. But I think most of us need to figure out how to eat food in a way that makes us feel good. Uh, and, and so what I realized that if it's really true that sugar and refined flours and certain processed foods are biologically addictive, then people need a medical detox and they need to do it in a way that's not going to make them feel horrible. And like when we bring someone into the ER who's a heroin overdose or who's alcohol um, addiction, we actually kind of bring them down slowly. We use certain kinds of strategies to help them slowly detox so they don't go into severe withdrawal. So that's exactly what the 10-day detox diet is. It's a very strategically designed day by day. Every day has a certain structure and certain things you do to actually reset your system so you actually feel good. Now, 10 days isn't enough. It's not a calorie-restricted diet. It's not a fat or carb or, or anything restricted. It's just, it's just you get rid of junk and you get rid of certain groups of foods and you eat whatever else you want. It's just lots of delicious, amazing, wonderful food. And if you do that program, buy the book and do the program, you'll feel the difference. There's no one on earth who doesn't feel better in 10 days of eliminating the crap and all the anti-nutrients from their diet. And how do people transition off of a 10-day detox like that? I mean, they, if they go back the next day to, you know, Frito-Lays and Coke, obviously they're, they're not going to continue the benefits. But how much wiggle room do you have? Yeah, so you go celebrate at McDonald's and have a Big Mac fries <laughs> and a milkshake. Yeah, that's exactly it. Actually, I encourage people to do that. You know why? Because they get violently ill. Yeah. And then they go, whoa, you know, they kind of get what they're doing. But we actually have a, uh, in the book a transition plan. So depending on your goals, if you're a type 2 diabetic – 
or you're 300 pounds, you just stay on it, right? Yeah. And so it's reversed. It's reversing it. We're working on actually research now to show how we can reverse diabetes. And it, we can, and we see it all the time. People get off insulin, and we see, you know, it's very possible. And then um, people who have less weight to lose or just, you know, maybe are pre-diabetic, they would go on a, a modified version of it, and they'd add back certain food groups. And then if you just want maintenance and you just did it for, for just a reboot, you go back to eating healthy, real food, which is a varied diet, including, you know, good, uh, clean animal protein, nuts and seeds, you know, lots of vegetables, fruit, and, and sort of moderate amounts of grains and beans. That that's interesting. That's, the, the grains and beans. I'm assuming still gluten free, or are you allowing gluten for some of the people? Yeah, it's, I, I think if you can get like heirloom gluten, it'd probably be good. Like you know, people tell me all the time it's interesting. I have patients who are gluten sensitive. They go to Europe and they don't get sick. Yeah, I'm sad too. Like you go have a baguette in France, you don't get sick because the wheat's different. They don't allow GMO there. There's three variables. I've noticed the same thing, and I've dug in on that so much. And and I'd love to get your take on this. Uh, about these three variables and see like from from your medical experience which goes much deeper whether like one of these is more important than the others okay there's there's the species of wheat for sure there's the the storage conditions in europe so the type of fungus and all stored grain gets fungus at some level so the species there are very different and we actually track global maps of what species are growing on what commodities and what regions so we tend to have a very aflatoxin focused north american thing in grain for instance and fusarium and corn but in europe it's it's a different mix and blue cheese (laughs) exactly and then, so so that's part of it. And then the species of yeast that we use in the U.S. because we're always in a hurry. So we have this like genetically modified like turbo rise yeast. But yes. in France, like ah, we waited four days because the cheese had to ferment or whatever. But it it yep. takes a lot longer for the bread to rise because it's a more gentle yeast. And I never could tell for me is it the species? Is it the contamination in post harvesting storage, or is it the fermentation process for the breads? Any Maybe. ideas? Probably yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> to all of those, I think it all it all makes sense. You know, we. So what most people don't realize is that food is not just calories; it's information. It actually contains messages that communicate to every cell in your body, to your genes, affects gene expression, not in an abstract way, but in a literal, real-time way. So the importance is to really focus on the quality of the foods you're eating and where it comes from and where it's what it's about. And so most of the foods we're eating in America. Are, are kind of weird foods. They're kind of Franken foods. And when you go to Europe, they have a lot of traditional, local, you know, heirloom foods. They don't even call it that, right? I mean, the food that your grandmother ate was all organic, all heirloom, right? It was all local, pretty much. It was, and so now, now it's a big fancy thing to have local, organic, and heirloom foods. But that's all we used to eat. Well, our, our grandmothers also didn't tie on Tuesday, pizza on Friday. Uh, you know, sushi on Wednesday. And one of the things that that I'm learning as I dig really deep on on what's going on inside the gut bacteria is that when you eat a traditional set of foods regularly, your gut bacteria change themselves to be better at eating this. If you eat seaweed every day, you get species that digest seaweed and you get more energy from them. Um, Are we completely messing ourselves up, especially in the U.S., because we just eat like random foods from random traditions, from random sources kind of all over the place? That's an interesting question. I, I hadn't thought of that, but you basically change your gut microbiome with every bite of food you eat. So you are literally gardening. It's your inner garden. And if you fertilize your garden with certain foods, you're going to get certain plants, right? If you are certain bugs. 
So what you eat is critically important to maintain the health of your gut flora, and most of us don't give two seconds of thought to that. And you're really only as healthy as your gut is healthy. And that's what we're learning, and we're starting to map the gut microbiome. It's one of the most fruitful areas of research. In functional medicine, we've been addressing the gut for 30 years as a way of getting people healthy. And it's probably the most important thing I do to change people's lives is to fix their gut. Whatever is wrong with them, I start with the gut and start with their diet, and almost 90% of it goes away. It's pretty stunning. Though we could probably have a whole podcast about just fixing guts, so I'm not going to go yes. into all the questions I would have. Let's do one. I, I would love that. That's one of my favorite topics. They used to call oh. me Dr. See Every Poop. <laughs> That's a great name. All right, we'll do that because I've got my U-Biome results, and, and I've been working on fixing my gut for years. So I, I would love to have you back on in, in a few months, and we'll, do, we'll, we'll dive deep on poop. Okay. We'll and talk, you know what? In, in the meantime, in the time that we have left today, I want to talk about another potential source of food cravings, and it's one that I've, I've identified uh, in my own life. And when you're sensitive to an environmental allergen, whether it's pollen or whether, in my case, toxic mold that's growing in, in a house, I might feel the sneezes or whatever, but after that, I usually get severe sugar cravings. And I don't have sugar cravings. They're not natural for me. So there are things in the environment that are triggering this, and you're going to be in the, the upcoming mold documentary that I'm putting together to sort of document how the environment, this part of the environment, is hacking our genes and our gut biome without us knowing it. But do you experience this in patients that allergies trigger cravings? Absolutely. I mean, where I see it most is, is food allergies. So, yeah. for example, if you're allergic to dairy or you're allergic to gluten and you eat those things, you crave more of them. Uh, and we, in fact, know that gluten and dairy contain peptides that are partially digested called gluteomorphins and caseomorphins that act like heroin or morphine in the brain and actually make them crave these foods. And when you take, for example, kids off of dairy or wheat, they often go crazy. And you see them just kind of have you know nutty responses to withdrawal. And so, yes, they, there's a real connection between craving foods and being allergic to them. In terms of environmental allergies like pollen or dust or mold, I don't see that as much, but I might not just be asking the question. So I think it's, a, it's an interesting observation that I, I probably would say it's probably related to inflammation because when, when anything causes inflammation in your body, it causes insulin resistance, whatever it is, right? So if it's an environmental allergen, if it's an infection, a virus, a toxin or sugar and it causes inflammation, it will cause prediabetes and insulin resistance. And that will actually lead to more cravings. So that's actually probably what's happening. Uh, I think you're onto something. I'm funding some research with Richie Shoemaker where we're finding people and we're actually going to look at their inflammation markers in response to food-based uh, molds when we know they're already allergic to them to see if the same inflammation is happening, particularly uh, in the brain, that we, that we believe may be happening. So we're yeah. going to get some hard data and put that out there. And I think that that's going to be transformative because... You know, there are lots of different things you can be allergic to in your food. And if it's something that grew on your food or something that was the food itself, the mechanism of action where, you know, the, the liver is like, I got to get rid of this stuff. Give me more glucose. Wait, I don't have any glucose. So it, it's so complex and fascinating, but it, it feels like there's a lot of room for just increasing the quality of people's lives. And that, that's Absolutely. where it gets. Absolutely. Well, we're coming up on almost the end of the show we have about four minutes left and there's a question that i think you're going to take four minutes to answer so i'm going to ask it now <laughs> i talk fast maybe only three and a half oh, there we go the question is in your entire life experience not just as a physician 
but everything you've learned, your top three recommendations for people who want to perform better. So if you want to kick ass, I don't mean on the sports field, I mean you want to kick ass at being a human, doing whatever it is, whether you know being a mom or a dad or you know being a doctor, what's the advice that matters most? I think the advice that matters most is eat only real food, nothing with a label, right? Except foods that you sell on your site. <laughs> it, it is possible to find some good stuff, but be selective. Yeah, it is, but the general principle is an avocado doesn't have a barcode. You know, yes. almonds don't have nutrition facts label. You know, a uh, you know piece of chicken doesn't have an ingredient list, right? So try to eat things without ingredient lists, barcodes, or labels. Second is you know that means eat real food, uh, and, and and especially in terms of the food aspect, I'm gonna kind of put a footnote on that. It should be very low glycemic, meaning very low sugar or what turns to sugar. So that's really important. The second is move your body, and I think that's something people don't do enough of. And we sit an average of eight hours a day. Uh, there's about 12% of Americans that get the minimum amount of exercise you're supposed to get. That means 88% don't. And I think I think exercise is not not a strategy for weight loss, by the way, but it's a strategy for longevity, for good health, for happiness, for removing depression, and everything else. And the third thing is, and it's sort of a combination of, is of learning how to reset. And that means whether it's sleep, whether it's meditation, whether it's yoga, you need to learn a skill that you like to do that will help you reset your body in a, uh, from the automatic stress response we have to a relaxation response. And those three things are the most powerful tools you have for prevention and for the, for the reversal of disease. And even, even sleep, I'm just going to give a footnote on. I think most of us don't get enough sleep. We need about seven or eight hours sleep. And many of us are shortchanging ourselves and we think we can function well, and we don't. So I think if you really want to enhance the quality of your life and prevent disease, sleep is a critical factor. Do you track your sleep? I don't, but I, I have one of those jawbone up things, and I, I want to wear it. <laughs> I had a first generation one. I have to get a new one. Yeah, the new ones are better. Uh, or if you want to go really hardcore, there's a company called Bedit that has a, a sticker that goes underneath your top sheet. It goes on, on your mattress itself. And then it's you never have to do anything after that. It just You wake up, and there's an email with a graph of your heart rate variability all night long, temperature, oh. light, sound. Oh, it's it's amazing. For you, the data oh. would be oh. very rich. Bedit? B-E-D-D-I-T. I buy the professional version, so it's Ethernet. You don't have to have Wi-Fi cooking you or anything. And uh, the reason I ask there is that I've been looking a lot at what, what nutrient timing does for sleep. And yeah. how do I increase the sleep efficiency? Because, you know, I, I did do five hours or less per night for two years straight, largely to try and make myself gain weight on uh, less quickly than I should have based on calorie intake to sort of show that calories in isn't really a very useful way of losing weight. And what I found was I felt so amazing. You were trying to sleep less to lose weight? No, to gain weight. I was trying to get fat. I was eating 4,000 to 4,500 calories a day. Oh, I was yeah, sleeping yeah. five hours or less, and I was minimizing exercise, thinking, oh, look, I'm only going to gain three pounds in 60 days, and I should have gained 20. Therefore, maybe the way we think about weight loss doesn't work. What happened... What happened was I actually lost weight and I felt amazing and I did it for like almost two years. Um, I don't know that it was great for me, but I, I tested my cortisol, which was low. I tested my autonomic nervous function with a 24-hour stick on monitor, all this stuff. And it's not to say you only should get five hours, but the tenet that healthy people require less sleep to be resilient feels true. Is there some yeah, sense to that? Makes some truth, but it's also variable depending on yeah. the person. So some people yes. like... You know, I mean, Bill Clinton just slept four hours a night, but, you know, he got in this lot of trouble. You know, people like <laughs> Einstein slept nine hours a night. Yeah, know? it is so, very personal. Right, right. Well, I, I agree. 
I met a guru who said he sleeps two and a half to three hours a night and he feels great. I'm like, wow, I want that. Sri <laughs> uh, Sri Ravi Shankar from the, the Art of Living Foundation is one of those guys. And you know, he's taught 25 million people how to do relaxing breathing exercises. And I've met him several times in person. And he really does like fly to a new city every single day. And he falls asleep for you know an hour a day. And when he does all of his kind of support staff, it's like, everyone, quiet. quiet. He actually fell asleep. It, you know, it, it, It's amazing. And then he'll wake up a little while later and just go right back into it. But right. I'm not there yet. I don't think you are either, no. right? Oh, no. <laughs> I wish I was. I'd written more books. <laughs> uh, exactly. There's always some useful thing to do with the time. Mark, it's been a pleasure. It's been fascinating to have you on the show. I look forward to doing another one with you, specifically focusing on fixing the gut. Yes. Would you tell the listeners your URLs and the titles of your books? We'll put all these in the show notes. We'll link to them, but just read it out for people who are driving. Sure. My main website is easy. It's just drhyman.com. That's D-R-H-Y-M-A-N.com. And you can also go to 10daydetox.com. And my, my most recent book is The 10 Day Detox Diet as well as The Blood Sugar Solution. And I also wrote one on, on faith-based wellness called The Daniel Plan with Rick Warren, which was really about using the power of community, using friend power, not willpower, to get healthy. Mark, I'm a big fan of your work. Thanks again. Thank you so much, Dave. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.